Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Lana Struva about hobby microscopy. We discuss how she got started with this, how and where she finds her samples, and we take questions from Couch Microscopy Instagram followers about getting started with microscopy. I often get asked what equipment I use, and I discuss this in the middle of the episode, so stay tuned if you want the specifics on that. Lena is one of my favorite people, and we had a really good time chatting and recording. We also talk about iNaturalist, community science, accuracy and awareness in scientific communication, why I won't swim in a pond, and why the two of us have beef with the Unicode Emoji Consortium. On another topic, this is the 10th episode of this podcast. I read in a few places online when I googled how to start a podcast a few months ago that 80% of podcasts never reach episode 10. So I'm really proud of myself for reaching this milestone and I want to thank everyone for listening and sharing this podcast with their friends. I also want to encourage you to rate and review it on whatever platform you listen on. Well, if you like it, because those types of metrics help more people learn what the show is about and help them find it. For more information about microbes or the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today, I'm hanging out with Dr. Lana Struve, who is a professor at Rutgers University and the director of the Chrysler Herbarium. She's also the author of the Botanical Accuracy blog. And today, we have a very special kind of episode where instead of a specific microbe, we're going to talk generally about hobby microscopy, which is a passion that both of us share. Hi, Lena. How's it going? It's great. Thanks for having me. Before we start, could you tell me a little bit about your background and what you study and why you do what you do. So I grew up in Sweden in a family that were all outdoors all the time and interested in all living and dead things like rocks and fossils and things like that. So we traveled a lot. We were outdoors all the time. And then I went to college to be an environmental biologist. And then I changed my mind after a while and I became a botanist instead working with plants. And I eventually ended up at Rutgers University as a professor here, and I teach botany and evolutionary biology, and also nature journaling. Oh yeah, nature journaling is exciting. Could you explain how you got started with hobby microscopy and why you like it so much? So I studied biology a long time ago in Sweden, and then we had microscopes and we looked at small things. But since then, I haven't really done it much until in 2020, Right before the pandemic, I decided to buy myself a microscope and start looking at small things again. And after that, everything changed. Amazing. And so I know that you you explore, you've described a lot of new plant species, and now you're doing a lot of microscopy. And I think all of those things fall under the umbrella of like naturalist activities. So could you describe what it means to be a naturalist and maybe some examples of some related activities? Yes. So naturalists has been around forever, since 
since humans started <laughs> in <laughs> evolutionary speaking. And naturalists are people that are curious about the nature around them, the world around them. And we're looking at things. We're trying to explore things. In the past, you had curiosity cabinets where people were collecting shells and strange things they found, and they showed it to their friends. They also became the natural history museums. And from this, we had the sciences of biology and other things developing out of these kinds of interests. And what happened now today is, and a naturalist today is somebody that is interested in nature but doesn't have to be a professional. So they can be anybody. It can be a birder. It can be somebody that likes to draw plants. It can be somebody that likes to garden and also photographs the insects that crawl around on their plants outside. So it's a very large kind of concept that we all can fit into if we are curious about nature. I love that. So when it comes to microscopy specifically, what kind of locations are your favorites to look for cool new organisms? And what types of organisms do you love to find? So I have two favorite places here in New Jersey. One is Rutgers Gardens, and that's maybe surprising, but I have found the most amazing thing at Rutgers Gardens, completely unexpected things. And the other one is my neighbor's pond, where I just go to her and I say, hey, can I, can I just go to your pond and take some samples and we chat for a while and have fun? And then I take my samples, go home and find strange things in their pond. I can attest that this is a really good pond because I know that you've brought me some jars of pond scum from this particular pond. And I feel like every time I've looked at one of these samples, it's been amazing. It's had some beautiful algae in it. So it's a good spot. And so when you're doing hobby microscopy, could you explain a little bit about your process and how you collect the samples? So I started with buying a plankton net. And this plankton net, I keep it in a shopping bag in my car, so I have it with me at times. When I see like a body of water that looks interesting, I go out and I throw it in with, with a long string on it that I hold securely in my other hand <laughs> so I don't lose my plankton net. I pull it back in, and then I have a little glass jar that I empty out the sample. And you need to do this because you need to concentrate the water sample so you have lots of stuff in your water sample when you put it under the microscope. And the process of finding places is like I have tried lots of different places. I have tried the really ugly-looking, you know, water body behind the CVS in South Jersey where I got my first COVID <laughs> vaccine and uh, took that home with me. And that evening I looked at it. So usually I collect it and then I look at it the next day or the same day. You have to do it pretty quickly. You can't collect it and let it sit for a long time. Or and I start, oh, it starts to smell and things start to die and <laughs> things start to. So you want a fresh sample. And then I just start looking at what's in there, start to take lots of photos and put those photos in a folder on my computer because I have a little video camera that is digital, which is really easy, really nice. But you can do it other ways, too. Amazing. So a few weeks ago, I asked my Instagram followers to post questions they had about hobby microscopy. So I think I'm going to read through a few of them and you can answer them. Maybe I'll answer some of them. I get a lot of these questions a lot. So I think it'll be good to settle some of these topics once and for all. Okay, let's see. Robster the Lobster One asks equipment setups, how you got started. It's a fascinating world. So maybe you just mentioned your camera. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about what microscope you specifically use and why. And I'll talk a little bit about mine too. So... I don't have a very high-end microscope, but I have one that works very well for the kind of work that I do. And the the brand is Amscope, and it's a trinocular 
microscope, and this is compound microscope, and this is important because you want to be able to see with both your eyes and have a third outlet for the video camera or digital camera. And that camera costs nearly as much as the microscope itself because that is important to have a really good one with many, many pixels, high resolution. And then if you want to do it and get those fancy pictures that have dark backgrounds, you need a dark field microscope. So you need to have a setting where you can switch out the condenser into a dark field condenser instead of the regular light one. Those are the two most important things, I think. I agree. And you just answered the next two questions, which were from <laughs> Lepo Tyron, who asked, how do you take good quality pictures of what you're seeing at home? And then Haley Wiley Therat asks how to fit a dark field condenser. And we won't talk about how to fit it, but just, you know, if you purchase a dark field condenser for your microscope, it will help you get those photos on a nice dark background, which is a nice alternative to just looking at things in bright field, which is on a white background. I agree with everything you said, and I also use an Amscope, and I really like it. I think it's all hobbies are expensive. Actually, you know what? Here, Baya Ka asks, costs of the hobby. Yes. So, well, I'll start. I'll just say my microscope was $315. It's an Amscope T340B, and I also have a $200 camera, also from Amscope, called an MU120 camera that slips right into the trinocular lens that Lena was talking about. So it's about a $500 setup, and I think that while $500 is expensive, it is pretty affordable for a microscope. And it, if you're going to get invested in this hobby, it's a one-time purchase that you'll never have to make again. Yeah, and I think I have a very similar setup. The, the plankton net actually is pretty expensive. So That's those true. is another $100 because what you have to get special plankton nets that filter very, very fine things. So a regular, regular net will not work because the planktons will go straight through it and disappear out of there. Yeah, that's true. I have two plankton nets. One was really cheap. I think it was like 30 bucks and it definitely doesn't filter well. But if there's like a lot of plants and mats of algae, it works fine, but it gets clogged up. And then I do have a more expensive one that that does exactly what you were talking about. If you don't have one, you can just take a regular just water sample and work with that too. Yeah. And if there's anything like grimy or scummy in the pond and you pick that up, that'll be covered in microbes. So there's ways to do it without fancy equipment. J. Williams 1454 asks, what are good ways of identifying the creatures you find in pond water? Which I think is a really good question. So that is a really good question and a really difficult question because there isn't one book. There are some books that have the big groups that you can find and examples of things, but there are so many different kinds of species that are in these water samples. So if you want to know for sure what you have found or key them out or so, you're going to have to get specialist literature, which is expensive. And sometimes you can borrow those things. And sometimes some of them are available online. But you can also do what I do. And that is I take my photos, I upload them to iNaturalist, and I don't often know what I'm looking at. And somebody else, some other expert will go in and say, oh, you just found this and this and this. And they will help you out or they say this is in this group not in that group and you'll learn by doing perfect yeah i was hoping iNaturalist would come up because you post quite a few things on iNaturalist and i think it's a really good resource so could you explain a little bit about what that website is and why it's important to post your findings on there yes so iNaturalist is a fantastic website it's free to use you can make your account you can be anonymous if you want or be yourself it's up to you 
But it's a public website, so we use it for uploading observations of things that we see. So it's a naturalist website on the line, global. And you uh, take photos, you put them up. They have a date and a locality and some information about what you saw. If you don't know what you saw, you put it as like plants or green algae or you know, life, if you have absolutely yeah. <laughs> no idea what things are. I've had to do that a couple times, life, and someone yeah. will chime in eventually with yes. a more specific ID. But then what happens is that people see your photos, and they will suggest what they think it is. And iNaturalist itself also has a like a photo recognition system inside it that will also suggest, based on your photo, what it thinks that you might have uploaded. So you need to have good photos for this, for other people to look at it, or for the image recognition system to function. But it's an absolutely fantastic community of people. There are millions of people that are online doing this, helping others, uploading their own things. And it's for any living species in the whole world. So you can travel anywhere and be part of this. Yeah, it's really cool. And sometimes you'll find something and it'll be like the first sighting of that in the country. Or I think I think you've had a couple like that, right? Yes, actually, I had one from Rutgers Gardens. Oh, that's amazing. So that they looked like, I took this sample in a kind of pond that where the, the pump wasn't working anymore. It was just standing still. It was like these green mats of things in there. You know, like regular, those kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, green mush, yeah, <laughs> Stag- stringish, stagnant mush. water's the best. Yeah, that has the grossest so, stuff. So I put that under the microscope, and there were several kinds of uh, filamentous green algae in there. But there was also something that looked greenish, but more yellow, and looked like beads on a string, like pearls on a string. Oh yeah, you sent this to me. Yeah, and I put it up there on iNaturalist, and I said okay, I think this is a green algae, but I have no idea what it is. Well, an algae expert from Russia (laughs) made a comment and said, okay, this is neonema. And I'm like, what is that? So I had to research that. And it turns out that that is the first photo of neonema on iNaturalist ever in the whole world. And it had been only seen, I think, according to GBIF, which is this big database around the world for biodiversity, it was the eighth record of this genus in the whole world. Of course, this doesn't mean that this is only here and in seven other places. This means that people don't look at these small things. And we can find these things, but they might be everywhere, but people don't report them. So you can find the most amazing things. Yeah, that's 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 a really good story. I also want to add for identifying things. iNaturalist is really good. I also want to plug Freshwater Algae of North America, which Lena bought me a copy of this a few years ago. And as far as books and field guides go, there aren't really good algae protist field guides, but that one's pretty good. And I also want to say there's a Facebook group called Amateur Microscopy, which There's a lot of other hobby microscopists and retired people who devote their lives to microscopy who are really good at helping you identify organisms you find with your microscope. So I definitely recommend joining that Facebook group, even if you don't have a microscope, if you just want to look at what other people are finding and get some inspiration. It's a good group. And there's some other good books. Uh, I can give a list to Julia and she can put it up on Instagram or wherever. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Definitely. Yeah. And so what are some other questions here? I see from John Bozanov, which objective magnification do you find yourself using most often? That's a great question. So I look at big things and small things under the microscope. Me too. 
because I also look at, you know, plant cells and uh, various big creatures, crustaceans and things like that. So I have a 4X and then I have all the way down to 60X. I don't use my 100X because it's just, I find it cumbersome to use with immersion oil and so on. So I use, you know, usually my 4X, 10X, 20X and 40x and 60x but it depends a little bit what i'm looking at so i can switch out in and out the different objectives you can't have more than four or five in a microscope or three if it's an older one i i also wanted to say that if you want to take photos and you don't want to buy a very expensive camera or you don't have a trinocular microscope you can buy a, like a, a thing that you clamp onto your microscope and you can put your cell phone there. And yeah. that is, it works. Yeah. You know, it really works. But it's a little tricky first to get it to function. I've been thinking of switching to one of those because my, my, I have a new iPhone now and I think the, the resolution and the quality of the photos is much higher than the microscope camera I have at this point. So I may make the switch and I'll tell you how it goes. Please do. So that was the end of most of the questions. There were other questions, but we kind of answered them just by discussing this stuff. So back to my questions. (laughs) I guess this is just a a silly question, but what's your favorite part of this hobby? And are there any goal organisms you have that you want to find that you haven't found yet? Where do you see yourself going with all of this? Give me a moment. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So my favorite part of this is that I knew this was going to happen, that I was going to see things that I had never knew existed before. But actually finding new things and figuring out what they are and seeing the beauty in these tiny little things is amazing. It's like you just think of water as being clean and as being free of everything, but it's full of these swimming little, you know, things, things that float around. And uh, last summer, I think it was, in the favorite pond I have, Jane's Pond, it was all green, completely green. Mm -hmm. And I went there, and I was like, okay, it's all green. What is making this green? So I took a sample, and it was completely full of Volvox. It was the first time that I had seen so many Volvox, and the samples were completely filled. The whole microscope picture was all these rolling colonies of Volvox. And Volvox are chlorophyte green algae that are kind of like, they're colonial. They're almost multicellular. They have these spheres of a lot of little cells connected and they have daughter spheres inside from reproducing. They're very cool. I love those. And then I I also remember I went to another pond and it was raining. It wasn't so great. But, you know, I'm just going to take a sample. I take it home. I put it under. And there's some weird thing with some sessile ciliate that is sitting and it's like spinning all the time and you can make a little video out of it and just the fact that these little things live in these waters and then are part of the ecosystems that lead up to fishes and lead up to plants and lead up to birds and everything is connected that's so cool i completely agree and i just want to add that the fact that like you're not going to a rainforest to find these things. You're not going on like an expedition to in the ocean. You're stepping outside, you're scooping up some sludge from like a puddle and you're finding these amazing organisms. And so it this is anyone can do this and you can find these things. There's there's weird interesting stuff 
everywhere. Sometimes in the most boring locations to humans, there's the weirdest microbes. So I think anyone can enjoy this. And to that end, I wanted to talk a little bit about community science or formerly called citizen science because you know, we're talking about doing this as a hobby, which is great. And I'm always going to do this. And I'm sure you're always going to keep doing this. But there's also ways to not be a scientist, but to make a hobby like this help scientists with their projects. So could you talk a little bit about the idea of community science? Yes. And I use iNaturalist for other projects that don't only have to do with microscopic things, but also everything, all biodiversity on Earth. And as part of that, we run the personal BioBlitz, which starts on March 1st every year and runs to mid-May. And it's a community effort to f- try to find as many species as possible together around the world. And it's been, it's the 10th year we're running it now this year. But what happens is that people go out and they report things with iNaturalist. And sometimes you find things that are new to science. Sometimes you find things that are new species or new locations or something that hasn't been found for a long time. And you don't know that when you find those things. You report, usually don't know that. You report it and then some expert will tell you, wow, this is really interesting. And you had no idea when you took that photo and when you uploaded it. And it's for microscopic things, since we have so few reports of many things, this really matters. You can really be an important part of expanding the knowledge about species, biology, distributions around the world, where they exist, what kind of environments they grow in. So I think that this is like really a fantastic connection between regular people, whatever that is in the world, but people that are curious. Civilians. Civilians. (laughs) And those that are expert and sitting at universities and museums or in other locations and really know more about that particular group and maybe not so much else. Totally. And I've used observations on iNaturalist to help me with things that I do for my research. And, you know, I just think it's really important to crowdsource information. There's so many people out there and there aren't enough scientists to look in every pond. And it is it's super helpful if people make high quality observations and upload them. It is like really helpful to a lot of people. And you as a naturalist can also become an expert of a group by just looking at things, learning about things, and then helping to identify things and really be part of the advancement of science, you know, as part of what in the past we call amateur biology. But yeah. now anybody can do it. The digital tools that we have have completely revolutionized how we do information gathering and learning and excitement about nature. Well, and and it's true, like, you know, a scientist, like I'm finishing up my PhD and, you know, I do a lot of naturalist stuff. So I have like a wide knowledge of a lot of these organisms, but I've really spent the last five years learning about one specific group of algae. And that's kind of how most scientists operate. And there's so many groups of microbes out there. So if one of them really interests you and you go out on your own, you could pretty easily become the world leading expert on that lineage. You don't have to get a PhD or be a scientist. No, you just need a little microscope. Yes. (laughs) You definitely need a microscope. Yeah. But I think also that it's something about the beauty of the things that you see in your microscope, where you look at some water sample and you just feel like, I have to share this with my friends, with my Mm -hmm. family, with the world. With Instagram. (laughs) With Instagram. There are so much symmetry and color that people don't usually think about, you know, when it comes to small little things in ponds. It's absolutely gorgeous things. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And if you think about, you know, once in a while you hear a story of, you know, a NASA satellite took a picture of this algal bloom. You could see the changes in the water from space. That That's obviously really exciting. But most of the time, like you said earlier, water just looks pretty normal. But there's so much stuff growing in it that you can't see. You can't even imagine just by looking at the surface. So you're totally right. But some people, they look at the what's in the water and then they feel disgusted. I do. You know that. It was that. Were you trying to call me out? You know that that's how I am. I, I did not try to call you out. But I know people It's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to swim in this water ever again. But on the other hand, there are some things also in there that are so beautiful. You, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I will never, ever again swim in a freshwater pond. A river, a lake, sure. But a pond, I don't think so. So you mean pond, the water stands still, it's not like moving. stagnant water, tiny, where like it's just accumulating gross, stinky stuff. I, I know too much. I've seen too much. I don't know. No, I understand. <laughs> also, the ocean, fine. Things are a little more diffuse in the ocean. It's salt water. I'm not afraid of the ocean. Never have been. Pond, like the more I know, the less I want to just like take a dive in a pond. But, you know, part of making contributions to any naturalist endeavor or to science is, you know, to help add to this body of knowledge we have as a society and to increase accuracy. So on that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about your blog, which I love, which is called Botanical Accuracy. And I just wanted you to explain a little bit about what it is and why this kind of science communication is important to you. Yes, so botanical accuracy is important, I think, because how society, how companies, commercial companies and others, media companies are using scientific information is important because it should be correct, as correct as possible. Science is a way of investigating, correcting, refining as we go along. But the botanical accuracy blog that I started, I started because I got kind of angry of perpetual mistakes and misinformation that was put out there by media companies, by people that were selling things or designers that were putting articles or something together that had information in it. It's very much focused on visual information, but it can be any written information as well. So there are examples there of where lichens are mistaken for moss, for example, a very common thing where you can buy chamomile tea that doesn't have chamomile pictures on it, but has the pictures of oxide daisy instead. And some people say this doesn't matter, but actually it does matter because if you over and over and over will hear that these pretty flowers give you allergies, hay fever, and they don't, you're misinformed and you're going to form an opinion, a negative opinion about those pretty flowers, but they are insect pollinated. They are not wind pollinated. They're not having pollen that comes up your nose and makes you sick. Other plants do, so you should know about those other plants instead. So this is important, I think, because it has to do with your regular everyday life. So that's why I started the blog and why it's running. I like it. I was looking at some of the posts today. I hadn't looked at it in a while, and they're really good. Um, I also just wanted to bring up that we both care about accuracy, scientific accuracy, and science communication. And we we tried and failed to get some new emojis made because Unicode doesn't acknowledge taxonomic accuracy. 
And I tried to get an amoeba emoji made, and then the two of us worked together on a proposal for a dandelion emoji. And it's not easy to propose a new emoji to Unicode. It's a whole proposal, like writing a grant for the government. But we tried, and we were rejected, and so the emojis are not organized according to scientific accuracy. (laughs) So why didn't you want the current microbe emoji that exists? Is there something inaccurate about it? Oh, yeah, totally. There's like a generic microbe emoji, which it's like a green spiky thing. I mean, it's it's good in that you could use it to represent a lot of different things, but I don't know what it's supposed to be. It has the shape of some viruses. It has the shape of some bacteria and archaea. It has kind of the shape of some algae. It's called microbe. And You know, microbes are the most abundant types of organisms on Earth, and there's only one generic microbe emoji, and they're very underrepresented in Unicode. Whereas I think we we quantified it, but I think there's like 40 at least plants and maybe more animals, which is great, but I don't know. There's a lot of animals with eyes, mammals and vertebrates and things like that. There's nearly nearly nothing when it comes to small little critter animals. There are a few ants, an ant or so on. But when it comes to plants, nearly all the plants that are there are flowers that are somewhat in nondescript but in different colors. And then there are edible fruits. Mm-hmm. There's we looked at that before the dandelion because it's yeah. a wild plant. There's yeah. nearly no wild plant, and dandelions are fantastic because they are everywhere. So many people know about them, and they have these love and hate feelings that they generate yeah. in people. So the dandelion we proposed actually would be both the fluffy seed heads that spread away and make a wish, and you blow them and then you fly away in the wind, and the flower itself, which is also important. Yeah, and I thought we ha- we had a good idea going. Like, I thought they were going to read it and be like, you know what? It would be good to just even add a small element of more accuracy to the whole Unicode emoji situation. But nope, rejected. Well, not just accuracy, but biodiversity. Yeah, biodiversity. There, there is a yeah. clear... We call it the charismatic fauna. Yes. So there is a clear bias for charismatic fauna, which are big animals that usually are either very fluffy with big, cute eyes and soft ears or are very scary with big teeth. So they, you know, give you give you very fearful, like sharks, jaws, you know, things yeah. like that. Well, yeah, charismatic megafauna. And I always argue that there's charismatic microfauna. And maybe there'd be more discourse on microbes if there were better ways to represent them in on common platforms and to talk about them more easily. But if they don't even exist as those emojis, we can't use them. We can't, we can't yeah. make them. They, they, it's like they don't exist in the world, right? Yeah. And that's why I picked the amoeba, because to be honest, I'm not super partial towards amoebas. There's other protists I prefer. But I thought you had to justify why you were picking it and make it seem like something that would be used by many people. And there's like various metrics you have to provide. And, you know, amoebas are like a pretty highly talked about microbe. I've already done three amoeba episodes on this podcast because three scientists I know wanted to talk about different types of amoebas. And I think they're pretty pervasive in popular media. That's Not- the coolest thing. The first time you take a sample and you find an amoeba yeah, and you've never seen an amoeba in your microscope before and it starts moving around and you're like, wow, it's alive here under this tiny little bit of glass. 
It is amazing. And I've discussed in other episodes, amoebas, there's there's amoeboid cells in all different lineages of protists. So the diversity of just amoebas is incredible. And I'm always finding things that I think are amoebas or that move like amoebas that I've never seen before. And I personally have a really hard time IDing them. So I just say amoeba and me hope too. that somebody can me too. <laughs> somebody will help maybe. There's a few. There's a few like um like arcella, like arcelids, mm. like the ones that have a brown test or encasing around them are easy to identify. Like amoeba proteus is easy to identify. But other than that, I don't know, it's pretty hard. Yeah, and that's a whole other thing. It's like you the most of the identification that I do is just based on visual similarity with things. You know, that's nothing else. You take a photo, mm-hmm. you look at various measurements of length maybe and and also color and shape and form. And yeah. that's it. So we're living in a very visual world when it comes to those things. But it's compare and contrast with pictures that have been published or photos that have been taken by this by other people. Yeah, and I don't know, you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this, but I really think a lot of people ask me, how do I get started doing this? Like, you just have to start. And it in the beginning, I didn't know what anything was. It took me months. And, you know, now I'm years and years into this. And I can look at something and say, this is probably this. But I still have a hard time with specific IDs of things. But it's just one of those hobbies where it takes time and you're going to get a feel for it over time. Or you can stay a beginner the whole way, the whole way Which through, is nice. because it's just, fantastic. Yeah. Then you could just be like surprised all the time. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't know anything either. I just like put the drop under there, found some diatoms on my first try. And I was like, wow, there's diatoms in this little rain puddle in my yeah. lawn. And I didn't expect diatoms on land. I didn't know anything. And then I could figure out what kind there were when it comes to the genus and some other things. I still haven't found the tardigrad. There's no tardigrades in my life yet. Yeah. I, I, you know, people talk about, oh, they're in moss, they're in moss. Like, I've found very few. I've found very few. I've found a bunch of dead ones before. Um, I once ordered some. <laughs> Just to have them. People, I was getting, like, I think it was, like, four or five years ago, I was getting, like, message after message on Instagram, like, post tardigrades, post tardigrades. I didn't have any good photos or video. I, the ones that I had found in nature were not so great. They were dead or squashed or barely resembled tardigrades anymore. So I just ordered them from Carolina Biological. It was, like, 15 bucks. I ordered a, a little test tube full of tardigrades. and I Alive put, ones? Yeah, live, and I posted them on Instagram. So they are the charismatic fauna of the microbe Yeah, and let me tell you, I will say, I don't like them that much. And I am doing an episode in a couple weeks where we're doing a takedown of tardigrades. So stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even going to talk about animals on this podcast, but I think every season I'll do an animal episode. And this season it's tardigrades. And we're going to dispel some rumors. Are they rumors or are they facts? Well, I think there's a lot of misfacts. Like, yeah, there's misinformation. I think there's a lot of sensationalism and clickbait around tardigrades. I think they are really cool organisms and have some really cool properties as microscopic animals. But every article headline I've seen about them is, I don't want to say it's false, but it's like so exaggerated. I classify it as like at minimum sensationalism. So is there anything like that about the, the algae? Is there any algae that people know about or that people becomes misrepresented? I don't know, like on a large scale. I mean, the algae that people care about the most 
are algae that affect them as humans. So dinoflagellates that cause red tides. Like I'm sure there's some misinformation about that. I think in general, there's just like a lack of awareness of what algae even are. I think people just assume, oh, they're little plants or I don't know. They don't really think about like where they fall in the like web of life. So I think I think it's more just like a lack of awareness, which you talk about with plant blindness. Yes. So we call it plant awareness disparity now. Oh, yes. Instead of plant blindness, because it's not really a physical blindness at all. It is something that has developed through lack of experience and lack of education. Which means that the more you talk about it, the more you learn about it, yes. you you work against that and you can discover these whole new worlds of things. Yeah, it's no one's fault they don't know about algae and protists. I didn't learn about them in school. I've never taken a class where we've talked about them, which I think is a problem. There could be like a chapter or a section in a chapter in a biology book about them. And sometimes there are, but they're hardly taught. So it's no one's fault. It's just, I think it's unfortunate. But it's a huge difference with what's in the book versus what you sit and discover when you're moving through a slide on your microscope, right? Yeah. It, it is, it's like real and unreal kind of, or it's like what you see on TV, you know it exists, but you don't get that gut feeling yeah. that this is here and now. And I can't tell you how many people have messaged me on Instagram or come up to me at flea markets when I'm selling my prints and they just go on these long stories of how their best memory in school was being in sixth grade and seeing an amoeba or seeing some sort of ciliate under the microscope and how it changed their life. So I think people get really nostalgic. So I think, you know, experiencing these organisms firsthand is is a really important thing that, that sticks with a lot of people. And that's something that I really try to pull into my teaching when mm-hmm. I uh, work as a teacher or as a professor here at Rutgers, is that there should be reality-based learning because that is really, it's like a confrontation between you and the real thing and you remember it and you you get excited about it. You know, it shouldn't be scary. That's not the kind of confrontation I talk about. No. It shouldn't be an argument, <laughs> no. but it should be something that is tangible or real or something where you feel a connection between things then it becomes much more relevant and you remember it and you will learn and you get curious for the rest of your life. If you have looked at one pond sample, you're going to want to look at the next one. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I mean, I know there's issues of schools not having access to microscopes and stuff, but a lot of schools do. And often students are just given prepared slides to look at or you cut a piece of an onion skin, which is kind of cool, but it's so easy to just scoop some water from outside. There's puddles everywhere. I'm always trying to tell people that it would be so much more effective and impactful for people to be able to find their own microbes. I remember when my son came home from middle school, I think, and he said, oh, mom, we looked at vinegar eels today under the microscope. Eels. And I was like, what is vinegar eels? You know, and he's like, oh, they are little things that move around. And they, they were bought, they were just bought from some supply company, just like your tardigrades. And I was like, well, there aren't any eels that are that small. There must be something else you looked at. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, they, he only called it vinegar eels. Go back and ask her what they were. No, that didn't work. So then I had to Google it, and it turns out they are nematodes. Oh. But the teacher never told the students that they were called nematodes. They were only called vinegar eels. She probably didn't even know. So, and then students think that eels, they're fishes. Maybe they know that. I don't know. And then they think that these are eels, fishes that live only in vinegar. And that's such a missed opportunity because I think nematodes are the most abundant animal on the planet. 
Is there anything else you want to talk about today? If you can't afford a brand new microscope, then you actually can buy pretty good microscopes on eBay. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. So they are things that have been decommissioned from school or other places, and you can clean them up, and you can use them and with the attachment for your cell phone camera. So that is something if you're looking for a more economical alternative to get started with these things. I think that's a really great suggestion. Lena, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. If listeners want to follow you or your work, where can they find you online? So I'm on the blogs. That's yes. <laughs> I'll post that in the show notes. Yeah, that's the botanicalaccuracy.com. And that's where my main point is. I also have a website at the university. I'll post all that. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much, Julia, for having me on this episode. It was being wonderful to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, this is so much fun. Thanks. This interview was so great, and I think it covers most of what people who follow my work seem to ask about. I hope you all learned something today. Lena did a great job talking about how to become a microscopist. And I think one of the major messages we both want you all to have received from listening is that anyone can be a naturalist. You don't have to be a professional scientist. You just need an interest and to find or make a one-time investment in some equipment. In honor of this being the 10th episode, I want to start a little segment at the end of this and future episodes called Uh, a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week to highlight the work of others on social media or elsewhere. This week, I want to talk about at Pine Tree Ella on Instagram, who posted the coolest video of what I think are probably juvenile Cassiopeia jellyfish in a culture flask swimming around. I think I watched the video at least 20 times and shared it with a bunch of people. The baby jellies are so majestic and beautifully symmetrical. She posts lots of other really neat invertebrates on this account, so I highly recommend it. That's all I have for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes, the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. 